the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Generation Ship goes gaga for alien visitors as they discover the slow train to Arturus is filled with naked people and fundamentalists. Grim Noir Knights, London Werewolves, and Japanese Gods. Plus, part 19 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Korea's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a rollicking interview with Eric Flint and Dave Freer. They discuss their novel Slow Train to Arcturus, which Bain is reissuing as a trade paperback with a great new cover this month. Slow Train to Arcturus is, to me, maybe the most amusing book Bain has put out. It plays with all the generation ship themes and introduces some dynamite characters from our alien protagonist, who is just aghast at humanity, as represented on the ship, to a thoughtful religious fundamentalist, uh, to a naked motorcycle-riding feminist supremacist. We'll talk with Eric and Dave about that coming up. And, of course, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. The August mass market paperbacks have flown from the nest. They've sallied forth with armor bright. They've issued forth like shining from shook foil. In other words, they're out. And they are at booksellers everywhere to fill your reading life with joy. There's Tree Cat Wars by David Weber and Jane Lenskull. This is book three in the Star Kingdom series featuring Honor Harrington ancestor Stephanie Harrington and her tree cat Lionheart also known as uh, Climbs Quickly in the books. We have a reissue of classic ship book, The Death of Sleep by Anne McCaffrey and Jody Lynn Nye. Jody Lynn Nye will have a new novel out next month, Fortunes of the Imperium, by the way, and we plan to talk to her about that one soon. Uh, there's also Eight Million Gods by Wynne Spencer a great contemporary fantasy set in Japan with some cool Japanese gods. And finally, we have Wolf in Shadow by John Lambshead. This one is set in London, and it's a rip-roaring contemporary fantasy as well. Tree Cat Wars, The Death of Sleep, Eight Million Gods, and Wolf in Shadow, they're all at booksellers everywhere right now. And by the way, uh, most of those... We have done podcasts on, so look back at the old podcast archives, and you can uh, see our interviews with these authors on these books. Check them out. I want to welcome Eric Flint and Dave Freer to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Eric Flint is the creator of the Alternate History Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632 published in 2000, and continuing through many best-selling books, stories, and collaborations. Eric's writing career began with the science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons. With David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series, and with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Katie Wentworth, Reiki Spore, and he also collaborated with Dave Freer. Uh, Dave Freer is the author or co-author of a host of books, novellas, and short stories for Bain and Beyond. His debut novel was solo science fiction adventure The Forlorn, and since then he's written The Mankind Witch and two books in his Dragon's Ring fantasy series, Dragon's Ring and Dog and Dragon. Dave is also the co-author of books in several series with Eric Flint, and with Eric and Mercedes Lackey, he's an author of the popular Heirs of Alexander series. Uh, this time we'd like to discuss a book by Eric and Dave, Slow Train to Arcturus, which Bain has now reissued in an all-new edition that is at booksellers everywhere. In my opinion, Voyage to Arcturus is a gem of a book, a real classic tale of science fiction adventure. You have a generation starship, weird cultures, aliens. It came out originally in 2008, and I think it's a book that's going to stand the test of time and be a favorite of many readers for years to come. So, Eric and Dave, generation ships, they're a science fiction staple. 
What's the original idea behind this particular one? How did it come about? Um, well, my memory, but is eight years old, and I may be wrong. Is I think I'm the one who proposed to David that we do a generation ship novel. But it was David who came up with what's really the critical technical idea, which is the train concept of that the generation ship is not a ship. It's a actually it's a string of ships, and and what that does is eliminate a lot of the problem you have of of traveling between the stars at sublight speed, which is you have to spend half your time decelerating. With the train, you don't. You just keep going, and then as you enter a given solar system, one of the pods, this is the theory, one of the pods breaks loose, and it decelerates, but the other ships don't have to. Yeah, I remember standing in, in your basement trying to trying to ponder the sort of mysteries of how to work an American dryer. Oh, there is going on about um, having having this great idea that we should write another generation ship story because no one had done one for a while and they were a real staple of science fiction and um, he really wanted to do one. But he needed a new and different idea. And I said, okay, well, this this has been something that's been playing in my mind for a while. Why spend so much of your time slowing down? Can you explain that? What's the deceleration problem? Well, if you're going to go anywhere, it's not, if you're going to go from Earth to Mars, it doesn't matter. But if you're uh, anytime you're traveling in a vacuum of space, want you accelerate. But when you get about halfway there, you have to start slowing down. You can't just keep accelerating because there's nothing that's going to there's nothing to break you other than using the actual engine that you're whatever engine you're using to slow you down. So you wind up spending as much time slowing down as you do speeding up. Um, there are various ways you can theoretically get around it with the, you know, this link, complicated orbits and so on and so forth. But by and large, that's kind of how it works. And the idea Dave came up with was that the, the generation ship would actually be a string of ships. We call it a train with different compartments in it or cars in it. And once it got rolling, then the deceleration would apply to an individual car. It would obviously have to decelerate, but the rest of them could just keep going. So you could uh, you could colonize theoretically several solar systems instead of just one, and you'd save a lot of time doing it. The other thing that we been kicking around is the other idea we decided to do. It's kind of a rendezvous with Rama in reverse, where <laughs> yeah. aliens being the ones who explore this ship. And so much of the story, probably at least half the story, is being told the point of view of aliens who, like Clark's protagonists in Rendezvous with Rama, are, have, you know, are investigating this interstellar explorer that's entered our solar system, and they're the ones who discovered. And the third element in it, which is kind of the staple of all... Gen I don't think anyone's ever written a generation ship story where something didn't go wrong. I don't think anyone's ever written a generation story where everything works the way it was supposed to. Um, something always goes wrong, and usually what happens is that the inhabitants of the generation ship typically... Things have gone to hell in a handbasket. Very often, they don't even remember they're on a generation ship. Um, there's been a cultural breakdown. We had all that as well, although it varies from one habitat to another. Those are pretty much the three basic ingredients of it, and then we just um, start having fun with it. Let's take the idea of, of getting on a generation ship, um, and you spend 30 years getting up to a third of light speed, and you spend another 30 years traveling at about that speed, and then you spend another 30 years slowing down. Now, if you didn't spend the 30 years slowing down, you'd save um, <laughs> roughly a third of, of your um, time on that end of the trip. Second issue is that when you finally get to this place, man, it sucks. <laughs> planet that you thought was going to be habitable wasn't. 
You've now expended all your resources getting to this place. Um, you've spent 90 years doing it. And, you know, you just can't live there. So part of the whole float plane thing was that it wasn't so much about colonizing um, planets, but colonizing space. The whole concept behind the space habitat is they are in themselves little worlds, and they carry with them the equipment to build more little worlds. All these guys had to find was a solar system which had space junk, um, asteroids, minerals, metals, water, um, and a source of, of energy, in other words, whatever sun they had there. They could park themselves whatever was a, a good Cinderella zone away from that sun, and they could populate that chunk of space. So I, mean, I thought that was quite a, a departure from the normal, oh, well, we are going to another gravity well to go and populate that. And yeah, the other thing, of course, is that, yeah, uh, you don't slow down, and that saves over a long trip a lot of time. And even if the place that one colony arrived at isn't habitable, the ship isn't a dead loss. It just goes on. It's The only loss is just that one small fragment that stopped at that planet. So you might get lucky or you might not, but you're going to be able to use the star no matter what. Exactly. Train. As we've mentioned, generation ships have a long legacy, <clears throat> and so do stories that take an oddball group out of uh, contemporary culture and postulate what would happen if they were to develop their own civilization. I wrote one of these, uh, my novel Metaplanetary. So, why are there? First of all, why are there various cultures in Slow Train to Arcturus, and um, and what are some of them that we encounter? Yeah, the, 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 the crude and simple answer to the first question is because we got a novel to write, and uh, it, it makes it a lot easier to write it if you got different adventures in each thing, um, um, being honest about it. Uh, the other reason was that we just thought it'd be fun to play with them. Um, the, I'm trying to remember, you know, because I did not reread the book prior to this podcast, but Dave, the first culture they encounter is that really vicious one, right? That's right. They, were the sort they of come in, right, and they get ambushed by survivors, kind of. Yeah. And, and they've yeah. broken up into several factions and have now started killing each other as, as kind of lack of anything else to kill. So, yeah. You're, you're right. And so what happens right is that not only do we discover that, that things have gone to hell in a handbasket in the generation ship, nothing's working the way it's supposed to, but... The alien expedition immediately goes to hell in a handbasket because they get ambushed. That's the first thing that happens to them. And so our hero, Krath, uh, uh, is, is immediately on the run. And he has to have a series of adventures. I'm trying to remember, was the next pod that he went into the religious one, Dave? That's right, yeah. That then was. And so then he meets yeah. the, the character who's one of our two human protagonist hero, uh, who's the very devout religious guy. And then from there, I think it's in the next pod, is the sort of Amazons. That's right, it was the feminist. Um, <laughs> the feminist, right. The nudist feminist, which sounds all oh. very, the, the nudist part sounds very attractive until you kind of figure out that um, these are female supremacists. Um, yeah, Howard was a little put off by it. You're, you're, uh, you're, religious fundamentalist character uh, upon first encountering it at least what is our, but why are there different cultures in each in each pod or bead um, why isn't the whole ship just one culture let, let, let's just try and play this against the colonization of just about anywhere in, in the world are the people who came off to America a nice um, uniform group or were they all the misfits who didn't really f find their home countries a great, a great place to be? Quick answer? I think the latter is the answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, and I mean, the I think... premise was partly that, that um, 
I mean, as it did happen with immigration to the New World, a whole lot of immigrants were people who were disgruntled, usually for religious reasons, but not always, with the old world. So, you know, looking at it from one point of view, a lot of them were cranks. Um, and there's a fair number of cranks who go on this generation ship, and, and the attitude of the society planet Earth that sends them off is kind of good riddance. It's sort of a and, way to get rid of a lot of annoying And wasn't that fairly true back in, in colonial history, too? I mean, a lot of the home societies thought, oh, yeah, great, all right, you want to go. What can we do to help you get the hell out of here? Yeah. Because we don't want you here. <laughs> Not to mention... Sending convicts to Australia and all kinds of other Yeah. So no, there's a, I there's have a to have a criminal record after all. That was yeah. a lie you told me, Flint. <laughs> <laughs> there is a... Uh, so the point is there's a, a long historical pedigree to um, uh, colonists being a lot of flotsam and jetsam. Um, and rather than being some kind of uniform, um, this is not sort of portrayed as a, in the book as a kind of um, elite best of the best expedition. It's more kind of they put this thing together and they're using it essentially to get rid of a lot of subcultures that are kind of a they pain don't in, in the fact neck. care if they succeed or not. It's yeah, kind of, exactly. Yeah, we got rid of you bastards. Um, and I, I mean, you know, the, the point with, with all this is that you look at the people who colonized the convicts, who colonized Australia, and many of them ended up as extremely successful once they got out of the society that they were in. Um, and I, I've often wondered whether what was wrong with them was not so much that there was something wrong with them as that they simply did not fit the... Uh, situation they were in at the time. And given a, a different and, and wilder situation, they actually did very well. The aliens um, are uh, are sort of more understandable to us than some of the cultures we encounter, uh, particularly our viewpoint character, Kretz. Um, can you describe the Mirren uh, and what they're up to in visiting this ship? Oh, man, you are weird. Psychologically, he's uh, perhaps more more like a, a modern person, even though he does turn into a female at some points uh, in his... Uh, <laughs> That's, I'll, I'll just record that statement and play it back to you at some stage. Maybe I'll play it to your wife. <laughs> hey, she knows all about it. But <laughs> That's why she married me. <laughs> the, the, so why is, what's Kret's agenda? Right. Um, after he gets... Uh, after my, he gets... my thing with, with Kretz was um, that they were a large society and he's a representative of a large society. All of these small groups 
are representative of small offshoot societies and what happens when you isolate people. But I'm not a sort of total everybody has to mix it kind of person, but I do believe that complete isolation, as we see from various island populations, says the guys living on an island, um, tend to become very weird if they don't get a little bit of input from outside. Howard, our main protagonist, comes from the, the Beat of the Brethren, the Pot of the Brethren. And you didn't, you could have portrayed him, as many other lesser writers might have, as sort of a bigoted re religious zealot, but instead he comes across as a very winning sort of guy. Um, like when he first sees the stars, a wonderful moment. Tell us uh, about Howard, how he... Eric, I don't know about you, but I've had more positive comments about the portrayal of, of Howard than I have about any other single character I've ever written. Really? Um, I've gotten had, quite a, a few. Uh, yeah, people say, oh, you, you really must have known my cousin who's a Quaker. Or, well, yeah, I did, in fact, in part, basis on my cousin who is a Quaker. But um, I just I thought that it would make a change to have a religious character who wasn't necessarily an evil character. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, always, um, I'm always a little, um, not exactly startled because it's happened so many times, but I get comments. From, I, I actually, um, I'm a socialist and an atheist, and I probably have more religious themes and more religious characters in my novels than just about any science fiction writer I know. It's a very atypical thing in, in fantasy and science fiction these days. Yeah, it's it's actually the majority of my religious characters are sympathetic. Not all. There are some really nasty pieces of work in there, but most of them aren't. And... I don't want to get in a long philosophical disquisition about this, but I think two things. One, as someone who was myself a political activist for many years, I'm very comfortable working with characters who guide their lives around some kind of ideological commitment, because I did. So, I mean, it wasn't religious, but I don't find that strange. Um, that there are, you know, people who do take their beliefs quite seriously and to one degree or another organize their lives around them, which a lot of people yeah. don't. But, um, you know, and in my case, it was political, not religious, but it's the same, you know, that emotionally it, it's something I'm sympathetic to. And, and as well, I knew a lot of religious figures. I mean, there were a lot of prominent religious figures who were leaders, for instance, the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, and I, over the years, had contact with many of them. Um, so... Also, I know a lot of history, and there's a tendency today people have, which I think is in the United States at least shaped by modern circumstances where the um, sort of very devout wings of the Christian religion in the United States um, today tend to be a right wing, but what I think is more significant is, I don't know how else to put it, a lot of them are just plain nasty, um, and just intolerant, and, and, you know, they seem to define their devotion by how many different groups of people they hate. Um, but if you look at it in broader historical perspective, the abolitionist movement, when it began, was a religious movement, and it was mainly led by people are devoutly religious. Um, and that's been true of a lot of social movements. So, you know, you found deeply religious people on all sides of the political spectrum. If you go back historically, right now they tend to be concentrated in one place in the United States, but that's just kind of a historical feature. So I'm kind of rambling, but uh, to me there was nothing unusual about Howard because I've done no character like that one exactly, but, but there's... Uh, you know, um, go all the way back to the um, 
actually go all the way back to my first novel, Mother of Demons, one of the central and very attractive characters is a religious leader. Now, she's an alien, not human, but um, that's Ushlabang, but she's portrayed very positively. That was my first novel. If you go look at the Belisari series that I wrote early in my career, there's a number of uh, very devout religious figures in there. And most of them, not all, but most of them are actually quite attractive. So I didn't really think much about it when we did it. Um, I, I I just think it makes her a more interesting character than just having... I mean, there is a character that Howard has to deal with in his own society who is a kind of more stereotypically narrow-minded, intolerant... I've forgotten his name, Dave. You know who I'm talking about. The yeah, guy who keeps exactly. giving him grief. Um, uh, so in, in a sense, you can say Howard's perhaps a little atypical, but um but and he never loses his his attitude his basic emotional structure at least. Um I can't remember what happens with his sort of thing. He remains basically his his point of view view remains pretty much what it was from the start. He just adapts the universe around it. Yeah. Which uh, is not inaccurate for most human beings. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Howard adapting... Uh... Howard, of course, is that for me, he was a real breakaway character, and I was doing something that completely different from anything else that I had actually done, um, in that, A, he's a very large individual, and I, my heroes tend to be not particularly large, because being large you know, makes being a hero a lot easier. Although I did write Manfred as, as one of those delicate little fairy-like characters. Um, <laughs> and the second, second feature is that he's a very serious man. He never makes jokes. And this, for me, was a real challenge. <laughs> I set out to have a character who never made jokes. Yeah, but he's a perfect straight man. Understands jokes when they're made. Yeah. And I think his kind of evolution through the through the whole plot is that he eventually starts to grasp that they are being made at his expense. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that that was my um, different take on on the guy. Yeah. Well, when Howard runs into uh, when they emerge in the matriarchy, uh, him and Kretz, uh, they immediately run into uh, Lonnie Lagarda, and. She certainly tests his beliefs out. Can you sort of place Lonnie within her culture and explain that uh, the origin of that culture? Well, my my thing on on Lonnie is that she's actually an exceptionally conservative character. She happens to be naked, covered in a little layer of body paint, um, and many of her beliefs are what by modern standards would be extremely liberal. But in her, con her, her context, she's a very non-free-thinking, this is how things are, this is how things ought to be, conservative character. And it, it's for, for me, what I was writing about with her was actually coming to terms with, yes, actually people who have a completely different worldview from yours could actually be human. <laughs> and that was for her quite a big step. You know, men were lesser creatures as far as they, that culture was concerned. They'd taken superiority to a logical level where the men had tried to revolt, so they'd actually bred them smaller. So all the men in that particular bead are under four foot tall, which means that they can very easily, you know, the sort of physical advantages that, that are talked about a lot on science fiction films about, yeah, women couldn't be great warriors because they're not as physically strong as men, etc., are deliberately reversed in that, that setting. Yes, I am weird. <laughs> well, there's a... I, at the beginning of each chapter, there's a little... Uh, sort of snippet from what the Earthers were thinking when they sent these people off. And uh, I think that this was a dominatrix culture that... Uh, That's right, yeah. ...that was being sent out. The C 
female dominatrix supremacist culture um, funded by an extremely wealthy patron who shaped it in the image that she wanted it. And finally, um, I mean, we, we meet a lot of other uh, cultures throughout, and they they have a ultimate goal, of course, and you can find that out by reading the book. But uh, why is the totalitarian culture, the dictator culture, not the one that would run the spaceship? I mean, don't you need a captain that tells everybody what to do? What, why did uh, they turn out not to be? Eric, you want to tell him why totalitarian cultures really work well? Get <laughs> <laughs> uh, First of all, I, the, the term totalitarian has got to be one of the most ridiculous terms ever coined. There's no such thing to begin with. And you'd think by now, after seeing Hitler's Nazi regime collapse after 12 years, after seeing the Soviet Union collapse in one of the most bloodless revolutions in history, that people would get it through their heads that, that so-called totalitarian regimes are actually very brittle. Um, they can look very imposing, but um, honestly, if you want to pick a profession that's got a really, really high mortality rate, <laughs> um, I think it's got a death by violence rate that's somewhere around 50%. Um, and of the 50% who survive, about half of them only do it by going on the run. Um, so, honestly, if you wanted to set up a regime that was going to run, um, a, a, you know, a, a, a generation ship, you really could not set up a dictatorship because it would almost be bound to, to collapse. Um, now, it could, you could have something fairly authoritarian. I mean, it's not as if there's some, you know, complete... I mean, there's a lot of gray areas. Uh, you know, there are societies... I mean, what's Singapore? Is it a democracy? Is it a dictatorship? Well, it's not really a dictatorship, but it's a very authoritarian society. You know, you know people have the right to vote and all the rest of them. So, you know, there's there's... The world is a lot more complicated um, than people make it out to be. But um, I don't know. If we were doing a different generation ship, you could develop. There's been some. I'm trying to think which ones where the running of the ship was put in the hands of a captain and a crew, but they did not control what actually happened in the you know in the ship as a whole. I mean, they were you know, they were the ones who were in charge of, of flying it, and nobody could mess with that. But they they were not the governors of the ship as a whole. Um, Harry, Harry Harrison, Captain's Universe, did a pretty good job with a, a sort of yeah. Oh, that was just the one I was going to pass almost to do that. Job. Yeah. The only trouble is that they eventually became so obsessed with the idea that <coughs> flying the ship was the important part, not getting there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking of Harry Harrison's because what they did there was set up a mythic structure to control the population by using an Aztec culture matrix. Yeah, that's, keep, keep the population dumb by not mixing the genes. That was a clever book, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of the better. That's one of the best ones of the, of the type. He did one. Heinlein did one. Um, I guess you could consider Rendezvous around a sort of generation ship, but not really. Um, there's been quite a few of them. Um, I think Brian was Brian Aldous. God, there's one I really like, but I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I think it might have been Brian Aldous. Uh, Nonstop, by the way, is the name of the Aldous book. What is it? It's called Nonstop. I'm pretty sure that's the one. Um, okay, man, it's not the there, um, I, I actually remember scenes from it, but um, I can't remember the title. I may be thinking of something else because that title didn't ring a bell. But anyway, um, the, the thing they all have in common is that everything goes goes wrong. <laughs> well, I can't, you know, I can't think of a single generation. A bit like... Um, a combat story. <laughs> and the one thing that you can be certain of is that the unexpected will happen and everything will go to hell in the handball. Yeah, go to hell, yeah, yeah. Just start yeah, trying yeah. to do it. I guess we never hear about the ones that, that are uh, placid <laughs> and make it to their stars. Like very boring stories. Yeah. <laughs>
So the a lot of people have. I mean, it's been said that science fiction is uh, a metaphor for the present, and some think it is and not. Or to some, I guess you have to say it is to some extent. Did you did you guys go into this thinking you might be writing satire, or did uh, you just want to tell the story, or or how did that play into it? Because it's a funny, funny oh, book. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that Dave and I have ever written Eric a book. Clinton, Dave Freer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he ever sat down to write anything that was just straightforward and. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah, lot I of. I don't think Eric time. can, and I'm sure his help would struggle. <laughs> yeah, I think that that um, I'm trying to think. I think every single book we've written, and I don't consider any of them to be satires as such, but. Well, maybe not the, the Heirs of Alexander books. Those are much more straightforward kind of fantasy. But certainly the Rats, Bats, and Vats books, the Pyramid Scheme books, a lot of satirical stuff in there. I don't think they're satires as such, but... Um, yeah, they're funny. <laughs> yeah, and they're also poking fun at a lot of stuff. Um, I think one of the things that, that both, well, Eric particularly, but um, I do is, uh, try to make people think about the issue instead of just accepting the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily preach a message of any kind. You just say, right, well, what you've always taken as true, would it be true if you thought about it this way? And, yeah, what conclusions the reader reaches after that, yeah, well, that's kind of up to you. But, yeah, at least we've opened your your eyes your idea box to some other possible ideas. And that's the fun of these things, is not so much dictating something to anybody, but just saying, hey, well, these are a set of possibilities. This is taking it to a logical conclusion. This is observing a set of morals through alien eyes. Just how much sense do they really make? Or this is a set of morals observed through the eyes of, of dragons. You know, um... <laughs> How much sense do they really make? So, uh, what are you both working on at the moment? Are there any Flint Freer collaborative projects planned? Well, I'm supposed to be working on the next Courier's book at the moment. Um, <laughs> what are you working on, dude? Uh, I'm writing a murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, never mind. I'll send you an email. Um, Yes, we have. Well, the one that we got under contract is um, um, the next. It's, it's a Wizard of Carries book. It's a sequel to uh, Sources of Carries. Um, one that we no longer have under contract because we had so many contracts, we folded some of them over. But uh, we no longer have under contract the, the third book in the Pyramid set of stories. But, David, I think you started. Dave, you started to write it, I think, the first draft, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've, I've written a fair chunk of it. Um, and, you know, it's something get that we day. get some time, we'll probably go and write it. Mm. And, you know, we'll just do it on spec and just turn it around and, you know. But, because uh, we enjoy it, those stories. It does seem that that, that that series has quite a lot of fans. And, yeah, it might might get some leaks. Yeah, but there are all sorts of things going on. I've, I've written a whole lot of... Um, Young adult things. I've just written a middle grade story of all bloody things. Um, and the Courier's book is going every time I get stuck. Uh. What are you working on, Eric? Right now, I'm working on a novel with Mike Resnick called The Gods of Sagittarius, um, which is a somewhat tongue-in-cheek um, it's science fiction, but it's about as far removed from hard SF as you can imagine. Uh, and it's basically Indiana Jones, got galactic Indiana Jones meets the alien with a grudge. <laughs> and it, 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 there's two main characters. There's human characters and alien characters. Mike's writing human characters, I'm writing alien characters. Um, and what's he got a grudge about? Uh, the alien society it belongs to is highly fractionalized a 
along religious lines. Um, they kind of make Europeans during the wars of religion between Catholics and Protestants in the 17th century look like pikers. I mean, they really take religious factionalism to the hoop. And the thing I find more entertaining about this is that their basic religious outlook, they, they, they think human beings are just plain crazy because to them it's blindingly obvious that whatever God or gods or demons run or dominate the universe are clearly not good. All you have to do is look around you and that's obvious. And so the idea of some benevolent creator, they just think humans are not playing with a full deck. Um, anyway, the heroine's um, monastery, I, I, I frankly stole this this trope from a Jillian Hong Kong, I mean, I don't know, Bruce Lee's been in this scenario a Jillian times where he shows up in his monastery and his guru have been massacred by unknown people and he sets out to get his revenge. That's basically what my heroine does. Um, humans have a name for this behavior and a part of these uh, aliens they call going Grendel. <laughs> uh, and so she's setting out to get her vengeance and in the course of this, and find out who did it, and because she thinks it was, there's a good chance it was one of the evil gods who did it. Um, and um, she actually belongs, her cult or sect, or denomination, is one that believes that the fundamental principles that guide the universe are in fact magical. And that, that the reason... As the as the founder of her sect put it, the, the reason people get confused about this is that a a, a sufficiently primitive magic is indistinguishable, indistinguishable from technology. So people are confused and they think what they're seeing is technology, but it's really just magic. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's not the, turn a, or turning a trope over on its head. <laughs> yeah, I know. Anyway, it's fun to write, uh, and uh, Mike and I should have it done pretty quickly. After that, I've got a uh, couple of possible short uh, subject uh, sort of stories I may work on. I'm not sure yet. And then the next thing I've got to be doing is um, there are a couple of 1632 novels, the first drafts of which are being done by co-authors, one of which has already been completed, just turned over to me by Griff Barber last week. That takes place in Mughalandia. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. That one is in very good shape. It's reading very well. And the other one is by Walter Hunt, which is the first of two novels dealing with the French Civil War in the 1632 universe. That will be the next novel that comes out because we have to. And then the next big project I'm going to work on is be my next solo novel in the 1632 series, which will be coming out hopefully at the end of next year. Uh, I'll be spending most of the end of this year working on that because that's going to be a really big book. Yeah. And after that, I, what I'm hoping I'll work on is the next book in my uh, um Sam Houston series that I started with Delray a few years back, uh, Rivers of War in the Army. Wow, that's the 1812 was the first one of those? 1812 and 1824. Yeah. I want to, uh, I've got a contract with Bain for two more books in that series. I want to do the next one because um, I'm way overdoing that. And somewhere in all this, I've had two-thirds of the next Joe's World book written for years. I want to wrap that up. That's the one called Desperate and Despicable Door. So, um, oh, and I forgot, David Dave has, has, has finished the first draft of the next Heirs of Alexandria book. Yeah, I was about to ask about that. So we're going to have a new Heirs of Alexandria. Back burner for the moment, just because I have to get this 1630. I, I know from talking to Tony what's, what I'm going to have slotted next, and that's not going to be one of the very next ones. But i got to go back to work on that pretty soon, yeah, um, because that will be the next one. Uh, it's sort of a, well, it's not sort of, it is kind of a sequel to uh, um, Birds of the Dead. Um, and Dave, the manuscript right now is about 100,000 words, I think. Yeah, right? I think it's, it's um, 150,000. Like is it that much? Yeah, well, that's going to be another big fat book. i got to go. But I won't be able to work on that for about for a few months because uh, I just I know when it could be slaughtered and, and I've just got two other books that are going to come out before then so 
uh, for the moment I've just been sitting on. Um, so there is a, a Flint-Freer collaboration in the moderately near future coming. Well, cool. Well, the book we're talking about today is Slow Train to Arcturus, and it is now at booksellers everywhere. Eric Flint and Dave Freer, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. All right. Thank you. Cheerio. From Australia. (laughs) You're not in Australia, Dave. You're in a tiny island off the coast of Tasmania, which is off the coast of southern Australia. Listen, I'm on... On the biggest island, off the biggest island, off the biggest island. What else do you want me to do? I've just seen a sheep blow past the window. <laughs> and now here is part 19 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free. Or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, many Bane titles, uh, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at that. Another active is young Faye, who is an active traveler. She's been on the run from magic-wielding goons who have killed her grandfather and wish to do the same to Faye. Now rescued by a strange group of actives, she's been taken to meet a mysterious general who may have some of the answers Faye has been seeking about her own origins. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 19 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 8 Why did I join the first volunteers? That's a tough one. My older brother Matt, he just liked to fight and figured Germans would serve as good as any. My other brother Jimmy, he was simple. He went wherever we went. Me, I was the one that liked to ponder on stuff. Roosevelt did like he did before with the Rough Riders. My daddy was a Rough Rider in Cuba. President Wilson didn't want him to go, but General Roosevelt wanted to prove that actives were good for the country. Got himself killed in the process. Never did like his politics. Too progressive for me, but I'd follow that man into battle any time. Lousy politician. Great leader. Sorry. The question, why'd I go? I guess I felt a duty to show that actives could be useful, that we could be the good guys. I was a fool. Jake Sullivan, Parole Hearing, Rockville State Penitentiary, 1928. Mar Pacifica, California. The three strangers drove Fay south along a road overlooking the ocean. The young man, who introduced himself as Francis, was driving. Lance was sitting up front, and the woman, Delilah, was in back with her. The man that had tried to hurt her was on the floor with his ankles and wrists bound and a burlap sack over his head. Every time he started to move, Delilah would kick him again as a reminder. Lance had taken a piece of charcoal from the ruined house and drawn a complicated mark on the unconscious man's forehead before pulling the sack over his head. She didn't know what that was supposed to do, but it seemed to satisfy Lance— Faye had started to ask questions in the car, but Delilah had shushed her, explaining that if the general, whoever that was, decided to let this man go, then the less he knew the better. Faye had a suspicion that Delilah had just said that out loud so the man on the floor would have some hope, and maybe that would make him more cooperative. Or maybe she just didn't want to talk. After all, Faye thought, 
Why would a beautiful, sophisticated woman that could jump across a vacant lot and throw men through brick walls want to waste her time talking to a hayseed bumpkin from El Nido by way of Ada, Oklahoma? The only other conversation was when Lance apologized for his swearing and called her Little Lady. He said that he tended to cuss more when his mind was in more than one body at a time. So Faye went back to spinning in her head examining the car, the finest thing that she'd ever ridden in, all shiny chrome and bright blue paint and soft leather, intricate mirrors on top of the spare tires, and a little golden angel on the end of the hood. She watched the ocean, amazed at how far it seemed to go until you could see the curve of the world at the edges, and even the people she was riding with, at least two of them just as special, if not more so, than she was. It was all very intimidating. They turned off the main road onto a windy gravel path. They drove under a stone arch with elaborate writing on it. Faye could read, but these letters didn't look right. They looked more like what had been scratched in the ashes of the burned house than normal words. There was a blocky shack behind the gate, and someone watched them through a dark window as they passed. Or maybe something, Faye thought, as the shape swiveled to follow them, and it looked entirely too triangular to be a person unless they were wearing a very strange hat. The house at the end of the lane was spectacular. It was three times the size of the Vieira's milk barn, only instead of holding cows, it was made for rich people, and it was on top of a giant finger of land that stuck out into the ocean. Three sides around the house turned into cliffs that ended in waves crashing on black rocks far below. The front of the house had tall white pillars and more windows than she could quickly count. They parked inside a garage, which seemed strange that there would be a space actually inside the house to leave your car, but this was big enough that they could probably park four tractors inside and have room to spare. She was having a hard time wrapping her brain around the kind of wealth it would take to build something like this, and suddenly the little wad of money hidden in her traveling skirt seemed pathetic. Delilah, would you kindly drag this piece of trash downstairs and lock him in the basement? Lance asked. We'll get to him in a bit. My pleasure. Delilah grabbed the man by one ankle and yanked him out onto the cement like he was a piece of bad luggage. She seems kind of scary, Faye said to the two men once Delilah was gone, the man bumping painfully down the stairs behind her. Is she going to kill him? Francis shook his head. That Gunsel, the people he works for, shot Delilah's father down in cold blood. For all we know, he might be one of the ones that did it. Serves him right. Faye studied him. Francis seemed like a nice young man. Polite, friendly, well-spoken. She even had to admit that he was rather handsome. He talked like he came from the big city, but not from the poor big city, but a place with schools and houses like this. He turned and caught her staring, and she looked away quickly. Then again, he had blown a man's head off earlier without hesitation. She reminded herself that she needed to be on guard. It wasn't like she knew these people. Lance gestured for the door. Let's go get that thumb looked at. Never been bit by a squirrel before, though I have bit people as a squirrel. It looks like it hurts. You're probably hungry, too. We'll get you a room where you can clean up before supper. Faye looked down at her shabby dress. It was covered in dirt, coal dust, and speckled with dull red drops of dried blood. She had even gotten the seat dirty in the car. Sorry for the mess, she said sheepishly. What? Lance said gruffly. This? He snorted loudly. Girl, you don't know much about what goes on around here, but let's say that I've seen a whole lot worse. Come on. You've probably got a bunch of questions, and I've got a few myself, like who your grandpa was, why he gave you a grim noir knight's ring, and why those goons were following you. That reminded her. I need to speak with someone from that note. Is Pershing here? Or Christensen? Jones? South Under? It's really important. My grandpa's last words were that I needed to talk to somebody named Black something. Francis and Lance glanced at each other. The muscular Lance only came up to Francis's shoulder, so he actually had to look up. Your call, Francis said. 
The younger one was dressed in a fancy suit, and Lance was wearing workers' clothes and a dusty hat, but it was obvious which one was in charge. Nothing personal, but I want some of our people to talk to you first. I'm in charge of security around here, and nobody gets to see General Pershing until I say so. She had not come all this way to be turned back now. You listen here. I need to talk to Black somebody. My grandpa said so. Faye reached into her voluminous skirt and pulled out the little Tesla device. I think this has something to do with it. She held it out, and Lance took it, scowling as he read the plate. My grandpa was murdered by men looking for this, and I'm not going anywhere till I find out why. Oh, this ain't good. Not good at all. Lance hesitated like he was going to keep the device, but then he shook his head and passed it back. He looked at Francis. I hope this ain't what I think it is. Keep an eye on her. Don't let her snoop in anything. Then he limped away, grumbling. He's grouchy, Faye said when Lance was gone. You'd probably like to freshen up, Francis suggested. When she returned from the washroom, Francis was waiting with a sandwich on a plate. I had the cook make this for you, he said. You have servants? Well, of course, this was one of my father's estates, he answered proudly. The society has been using it since the old headquarters was destroyed. She took the sandwich. It must be nice to be rich. Servants and indoor plumbing. I, well, he stammered. I wasn't going to brag, but yes, I suppose it is rather nice. Please sit down. He gestured toward a nearby table. The interior of the home was amazing. Electric lights were on every wall. This is the nicest dining room I've ever seen, Faye said, settling into a padded chair. Well, uh, actually, this is where the help eats. The dining room is back there. He drifted off, uncomfortable. Sorry, bragging again. For some reason, his embarrassment made Faye smile. She liked this, Francis. She ate her sandwich. It was good. Lance returned a minute later. Here's the deal. You seem like an all right kid, Faye, but we deal with some strange types, and there's more than a few folks who'd want nothing more than to see him dead. In fact, the predicament we're in now is because I didn't do my job a few years ago, and somehow somebody got through and put a curse on him. It ain't nothing personal, but I'll be needing to hold on to your little gun, and if you try to use any magic on the general, I will kill you. Do you understand? No need to be impolite, Francis said. I once saw a six-year-old slash a man's throat with spikes that came shooting out his fingers, Lance pointed out. Fine, Faye said, removing the Ivor Johnson from her pocket and passing it over to Francis. I want that back. It cost ten whole dollars. They left the kitchen area through some sort of service room, past a workshop full of machines, out into a giant foyer, then up a flight of stairs. Lance's limp was more pronounced going up the stairs, almost like one leg was shorter than the other. What happened to your leg? Faye asked. I left part of it in a demon's stomach, he responded without turning around. Francis leaned forward and whispered in her ear, You can't get a healing if too much time's passed. If it's healed on its own wrong, it'll stay that way. A surgeon tried to fix it later by cutting out all the poison bone. He's sensitive about it. He heard, Shut up, Francis. You can control animals? Sort of. Faye smiled. That would be the best power ever back on the farm. No cow would ever kick me in the hands again. What was that mark you put on that man's head? What's with the funny writing on the gate and in the house? Magic spells. Do you ever get tired of asking questions? Faye thought about that for a second. Now, where are we? Lance sighed as they reached the top of the stairs. He knocked politely before entering the first room. A beautiful blonde woman wearing a white sundress was sitting in a chair reading a thick book. Hey, Jane. She looked Faye over as she stood. Oh, honey, what happened? You've got a hole in your foot, and something beat your hand. You should have called me and I would have come down. Imagine making the poor thing walk up here with a hole in her heel. How'd you know? 
Fay asked, but was ignored. She didn't tell me nothing about foot problems, Lance said defensively. Damn, woman, how was I supposed to know? Is she okay? Jane asked, looking to Francis for confirmation. She must be since you brought her up here. She didn't burst into flames when we crossed the barrier, did she? Francis said, pointing back at the doorway. There were more of the curious letters carved into the wood. Hold still, Jane ordered as she set her hands on Faye's shoulders. Jane's hands were extremely warm, so warm that Faye could feel the heat through the coarse fabric of her traveling dress. Then her hands were ice cold, and now Faye was hot like she was burning with fever. She wobbled for a moment, dizzy as the flash of warmth passed. What just happened? The hole in your foot will be closed by supper, Jane answered. I just gave you a little help is all. Faye's thumb felt puffy. She held it up, and the punctures from the squirrel bite were now just purple indentations. An actual healer. Only millionaires had healers. Faye felt lightheaded. I can't afford to pay you. Oh, honey, you've been listening to too many radio programs. Jane clucked reprovingly, picked up her book, and returned to her chair. Don't keep the general up too long. He's having a bad day. It's about to get worse, Lance muttered. That was part 19 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pincho. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a troop of well-fattened wallabies, one ginormous crayfish that gives a lie to hypoxic size limitations, and a self-renewing socialist utopia that never needs batteries, in thanks and praise to Eric Flint and Dave Freer, authors of Slow Train to Arcturus. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Of